there are times where, you know, an individual can make a huge difference. And, you know, sometimes millions or billions of people will will just be seeing something happen and saying, there's nothing we do about that. And then one person steps up and says, no, we can do something about it. And almost just by that action, by that stance alone, others say, okay, maybe you're right, we can. Welcome to Consensus and Conversation, a podcast where I talk with inspiring leaders across the country who are making the world a better, more sustainable place. I'm your host, Connor Gaughan, and today I'm joined by Tim Sheehy, a former U.S. Navy SEAL turned businessman and entrepreneur. After his highly decorated military career, which included two medals for valor in combat, a Purple Heart, and a Bronze Star for valor, Tim founded Bridger Aerospace in 2014, an aviation service provider working to prevent wildfires, and Ascent Vision Technologies in 2015, which provides cutting-edge technology to customers including the U.S. government. Tim is a shining example of taking action. Bridger Aerospace's mission is to save lives, protect property, and protect habitat. And they live up to those values through their wildfire fighting services and the way they operate their business, as does Tim and his personal passions. If you're needing any inspiration for the future, look no further. Tim, I'm so honored to have you here today. Thanks for joining us. So why don't we just start off by uh, telling us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Sure. I'm from Minnesota originally. Uh, I live in Montana now with my wife and four kids, and that's where our company is. You started out at the Naval Academy. Give us a little bit about that experience. How'd you end up there? Sure. So I grew up, as I said, in, on a lake in Minnesota, and uh, my neighbor growing up was a Navy pilot from the Korean War, and um, he used to land his plane on the lake, um, sometimes in the winter when it was frozen, summer on floats, and and um, you know, I always liked airplanes, but he took me up uh, flying once, and I just fell in love with it immediately as an eight-year-old kid and knew right away that aviation was going to be a part of my life, and I already had an interest in the military, so you know, partly due to due to his inspiration, my parents were extremely supportive as well. I decided I wanted to go into the Navy and be a Navy pilot. And, you know, where better to start that career than the Naval Academy? So, you know, that's really what led me there. I'm 37 now, so I was in high school when 9-11 happened. So when, when 9-11 occurred, you know, that only drove home to me more the need to serve our nation and and perform public service in a time of national need. So that just reinforced my decision to enter the military and, and go to the Naval Academy. But I'm curious, just, you know, in terms of your time in the military, what stands out as the most personally important or impactful aspect of your service? Well, you know, to be honest, it's really hard to, to take all that and, and boil it down into one point, but it truly comes down to knowing that what I'm doing is benefiting others in a very real way. And I think, I think a lot of people feel that and live that, and we all have our own calling to service, and we all find out what our own mission is. And sometimes it takes us our whole life to figure that out. Some people never figure that out. But I think for me, uh, in a corny, maybe hero complex sort of way, for me, the ultimate form of mission and service is putting your own self on the line to help others, and especially helping others who, who are not in a position to help themselves. And, and that's guided me, you know, really my whole life from military service and then, of course, into the companies I founded outside of military service, always trying to, to serve a, a higher mission and, and serve the greater good and, and protect people and help people that, through whatever circumstances, aren't in a position to help themselves. So you attend the Naval Academy 
thinking you go into pilot training. But tell us a little bit more about your time in the service and then the ultimate transition into the business world. Yeah, so, you know, uh, obviously I didn't end up being a Navy pilot. I ended up becoming a, a Navy SEAL officer. And, you know, that was another, as I've learned in life is, you know, we all have our trajectory we think our life will follow. And, you know, maybe some people are really good about following that little treasure map. But at least for me and most people I know, you know, if you rewinded 30 years and asked your child self if you would be doing what you're doing now, almost certainly <laughs> that child would say no. And uh, I'm no different than that. I, I never planned to start a business. I never planned to get out of the military. I never planned to become a SEAL in the first place. But um, I, I had a series of, of events that led me out of the military. I was wounded in combat. You know, medically, I was I was placed on a you know operational hold as a SEAL, and you know it had been a really busy few years. I was not in the military long. All in, I was in uniform, active duty for about ten and a half years. But some people do thirty years, forty years. But um, I had a lot of combat time in, in that period. It was a busy time. We had two wars going on, and my wife as well was a combat veteran. So you know, after I was injured for the last time, and my wife and I had to really make the decision, were we going to stay in or are we going to move on? And for me, that the passion of the military was leading my men in combat, leading my men on missions and being a team leader. And when I could no longer do that, the passion to stay in the military was kind of gone. So and, and looking for what was next in life for us, you know, at the time, this was 2014, it was a decision for me. I said, you know, really the best way I can serve my country, I think, is starting a business, you know, creating jobs and providing really important capabilities to those still in service in some way. And I can do that from the outside. And, that, and that's what led me to start my own company. Uh, I never, ever thought we'd get to the size that we have, but, you know, in my own small part, provide important capabilities through technology and services to those still serving. So it's a good segue to giving us the origin story of Bridger Aerospace. How did that start? Well, it started uh, literally in a barn in Montana. And, um, you know, all the savings my wife and I had from the military. And so uh, when we were deployed, there wasn't really any expenses. So we accrued, you know, a good amount of savings, a couple few hundred thousand dollars that we'd saved up over many deployments. And when you're deployed, you do get combat pay. You get an extra, you know, depending on what you're in, a couple hundred bucks a month. And, you know... That adds up over time. So we had some savings and my brother wasn't in the military. He was in, in business in the private sector. He was a great mentor of mine. This was my father. And, and they helped me to kind of figure out how I would set up this entity and how I could potentially grow it. So we started Bridger. We bought one plane from NOAA, National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. And really, that, that was all our cash. We bought the plane. My uh, high school, middle school friend of mine, one of my best friends, Sam Beck, you know, moved out to Montana. And he invested a bit, too. And he didn't make any money. I didn't make any money. But we bought this plane. We designed these cameras. And we said, Let, let's see if we can make this capability work. So our first revenue was actually looking for cattle on cattle ranches uh, in Montana. They pay us like 200 bucks you know, a day to go look for lost cattle with our infrared camera. And we weren't very good at it. We didn't find any cattle. But while we were doing <laughs> that, we started to figure out how our systems were going to work. And, and in the process, the local Forest Service representative met us. And said, hey, you know, that plane with your infrared camera, that could be really handy for us with wildfires. Have you ever thought of, thought of flying fire? And I said, well, <laughs> if you're paying the bills, you know, I'm going because I'm out of money and I'm broke. So, you know, you tell me where to go and we'll go there. And, and that's how we literally kind of accidentally fell into wildland firefighting and immediately fell in love with the mission. Realized that, you know, this is exactly what we were meant to do from the beginning. We just didn't know it yet. And, um, you know, we went all in, you know, bought a second plane, the third plane, a fourth plane. We didn't take any money out, no pay, no profit. And we just kept recycling the cash in and growing the business. And 
really bootstrapped it for a few years and again, grew the fleet up to several planes. And then the camera technology we developed, uh, we started selling that as a product and that grew really quickly too. And it was really an exciting, fun time. Obviously at, at the time, it wasn't very much fun. Looking back, it was a lot of fun. But, um, and at the course, same time, I had one baby and then had a second baby and had a third baby. And now I'm onto my fourth, but uh, it was a busy time of life to be sure. But it, it was really fun. And, and it was, um, it was a great learning experience for me in the early team. There's a couple interesting things that I'd love to tease out a little bit. The first is, you know, so many of us, and I went through this in my first startup, are starting down a path and get to a fork in the road. And it sounds like yours was the forest service officer saying, hey, you could do this other thing too. And I know some entrepreneurs say, no, I've got this mission. I've got this vision. You know, we're going for it. And others say, I need the money. Let's go for it. Let's, let's try this new thing. How did that fork in the road work for you? How did you come to the decision point to give a try to going a different path than, than you originally envisioned? Well, of course, you know, th there's the P word in startup world these days, pivot. And of course, pivot <laughs> in many cases uh, is a euphemism for, well, we failed and this plan didn't work, so let's right. go make something else does bef before we raise our next round of VC, right? So I think, you know, but in truth, uh, unfortunately, the word's taken on a negative connotation in, in the startup world. But uh, whether you want to call it pivot, whether you want to call it morphing, whether you want to call it, you know, adjust on the fly, what I remind people is, you know, the human brain isn't done developing at 17 or 18. Actually, your 20s are some of your most formative years and how your brain develops and your personality develops and your value system and kind of who you are as an adult really starts to take shape. And and therefore, what you do in your 20s is really important and formative for kind of how you are going to view things and do things the rest of your life. And you know, for me, I spent most of my 20s fighting an insurgency, which was, you know, a very decentralized, malleable, innovative enemy that, frankly, didn't have any rules because mm -hmm. they were an insurgency. They didn't have a single commander. They didn't have structure. And therefore, if you existed as an opponent to insurgency, which, as you've seen, you know, for decades and centuries on end, is a very rigid, plan-oriented, strategically-minded opponent that was unwilling to adjust your methods, your tactics, your procedures, your technology to combat your enemy, you were not going to win. As someone who spent my uh, 20s there on the ground, I credited a lot for our business success because it made me understand and internalize that mission is what matters. Values and ethics are what matters. Making sure your team has the character and ethics that align uh, mm -hmm. with, with your vision and that your mission is very clear and understood by everyone on the team. I started my businesses knowing that this interesting capability of air-ground integration, of having an aircraft that can support a ground team with sensors, with technology, and save lives and support that team, there was value there. And I knew there was value there. Now, whether that was going to be value in spotting cattle or protecting our border or protecting law enforcement or, or creating products or providing a service was, was unclear, to be totally honest. Sure. But I knew that there was value there. And, and I think having the willingness to um, explore that value proposition and understand it before making a super rigid business plan that was tied to unmalleable conditions, goals, financing assets, or anything else uh, was really, really important. So the other pivot point that I want to dig into a second is you realize you've got two things. You've got a product and you've got a service. And... Some folks would keep those two things in the same business. Some folks would choose one of those two to pursue. You chose to split them into two and pursue them both. And so I want to hear a little about that decision point also. Yeah, I mean, I think 
there's perfect world conditions. There's what we'd like to do. There's what we want to do. There's what we can do. And there's what we have to do. And I think, you know, this journey of the product service company split uh, from Ascent Vision Technologies, ABT, spinning out of Bridger and eventually becoming a separate company was, was a combination of all those things. You know, in a perfect world, yes, I probably would love to keep all the businesses together and continue to grow, you know, one big, happy Tim Sheehy family. But uh, obviously, realistic conditions prevail. And one thing we found, which I wouldn't have expected because I was too stupid to know any better, but obviously, money is critical in early business. And and money comes in different colors and different shapes and different sizes, and it has different Mm -hmm. strings attached. And, you know, no dollars created equal. And what I did find as I was growing these businesses as, you know, we had a service model that was, quite frankly, older aircraft that were flying basically by the hour for the government. They were paying us by the hour to go perform a service. And obviously, service businesses frequently are a little less sexy. You know, they're, they're generally lower margin than products. They have a slower growth trajectory than products. But, you know, in this case, we had assets and we had long-term government contracts in a highly regulated industry that was growing. And it was a nice business. Banks love that. Banks look at airplanes and contracts. They say, that's awesome, man. I'll give you a loan. And and that's great. And then here on the other side of the business, we had some technology, some camera systems, some software that was very innovative. So banks look at that and say, get that away from me fast. Then you go to a venture capital investment, they say, old airplanes, service contracts, government contracts, ugh, ew, like that's so uncool. That's so not like doesn't go with my yoga pants and Patagonia vests. Like, no, I don't want to touch that. Ooh, the products, the software, that's really neat. Right. Like, give me that. So as I was at this impasse where my brother and I and my other founders kind of had to look at this and say, all right, Bridger is at a growth point. We need capital to grow now. This is circa 2017, late 16. Um, We've got a certain type of investor here that really wants to back the products. And we have a certain type of investor here that really wants to back the assets. So, you know, part of that was to split those two. That was part of the driving reason for that. So for all those reasons, you know, that split occurred and it wasn't an easy decision. I think in retrospect, there's no question it was the right decision. Both companies ended up being leaders in their field and growing extremely rapidly to, to great enterprise values and market capitalizations. But most importantly, each company provided critical services to our nation. You know, Ascent Vision Technologies provided some of the most cutting edge surveillance and protective equipment to our troops. Uh, that in 2019, that drone that, that was shot down, the Straits of Hormuz, that was our system that we had helped to invent and create and produce right there in Bozeman. Uh, and then, of course, every summer, the, the crews of Bridger take take the field and, and protect uh, protect the American Western wildfire. So, um, you know, that's kind of a, a nutshell story of, of why we had to split and how we split. And I still maintain it was the right decision. I find it so fascinating. You talk about how pivots becomes a, a negative word. The finance realm seems to just dig its heels in on what is a good and what is a bad pathway. <laughs> and, you know, these days, or at least most recently, everyone wants the you know the the unicorn, the product, the tech, um, and and so you'll hear with disdain folks, particularly in Silicon Valley, say, "Oh well, that's a lifestyle business," <laughs> or, or "Oh that you know, there's no that's not a unicorn. There's there's no exit there." And then you you look at some of these service businesses that have long term contracts that have real assets that provide real community and and economic value. And think, why is that a bad business? I don't like people would, you know, love to own a business that returns, you know, seven figures a year in cash flow, even if it's not growing at 100% and has no billion dollar exit. Like it just, it's silly to me that 
we found ourselves in this world where like only unicorn matters or you can't have value in both types of business structures and both types of profiles of companies. I couldn't agree more. And it's frankly, extremely frustrating to me to see that when, you know, I was just talking to someone the other day about how, you know, traditional American business values, um, which is sustainability, profitability, uh, you know, good employee retention, uh, good family yeah. values in the company uh, have been supplanted by this obsession with the unicorn, you know, exit. And, you know, I've never once built any of our business for an exit. Coincidentally, you know, we never did that to begin with. Um, yeah. So, so it's really frustrating to see, especially too, when you look at the critical industries in America, the industries that really matter and support people, you know, the American farmer, the American rancher, you know, they feed yeah. our nation, they feed the world. And yet, you know, they barely survive on government subsidies because people will pay, they won't even look at what they're paying for the new pair of yoga pants or trendy, uh, you know, shoes, because that's what they want or whatever the new iPhone is, whatever the other crap they're buying. But when they buy a plane ticket to get on a plane that's going to fly them at 40,000 feet, and if something goes wrong, they're going to be burned alive in two seconds, they buy their plane ticket based on the cheapest ticket they can find. (laughs) And more likely, that ticket costs less than their iPhone. But if their iPhone breaks, they're totally fine. If that plane crashes, they're dead. But Mm -hmm. when do they decide to save money? On a plane ticket. And you know where your T-shirt is made, whether it's Bangladesh or Sri Lanka or Thailand, but you don't know where your meat comes from because our food supply chain is focused on bottom dollar. So I I completely agree that, you know, the the, the important businesses that, that, you know, you can't eat what's in zeros. You can't eat yoga pants. The industries that really matter – um, that protect us, that protect our way of life and protect our values are kind of, as you said, treated as like these donkey businesses that nobody likes and everyone wants the next unicorn business, the next dating app, the next yoga pant. And I think um, I do see, think we're seeing some some normalization there. I think we're seeing valuations mm-hmm. come back to earth and we think we're seeing people say, OK, hold on. You know, we've had 15 years of this crazy speculative gold rush you know, everyone's digging to unearth the next unicorn. And the reality is what they find is most of those unicorns are like dead dinosaur bones. They're not unicorns. And the reality is the donkey businesses that just are good, steady businesses that return money to investors that have long-term contracts, they take care of their employees uh, are, are, you know, once again, becoming uh, back in vogue. And, and, you know, I'm proud to say we fall into that category. We're not a unicorn. Uh, You know, I think we're a nice horse. Maybe we're not a donkey, but, you know, we get the job done and we're proud of it. I've heard kind of as you talk some clear military metaphors. And so I do want to get back to that question I mentioned early on, which is how do you think your time in the service has informed your framework for running a business? Um, very simple. Again, it comes back to mission. I mean, I keep saying that sounds corny, but I just had an all hands talk with our staff on Monday and, you know, we did an employee survey and I'm really passionate about those because I'm a big believer in kind of the theory of wisdom of crowds. And this survey, uh, you know, it was kind of neat how the software did it. it. It had all the words that people used to describe the company and it conglomerated them into this like mosaic image with the bigger words that were closer to the center represented the words that were most often used throughout the survey by our staff to describe the company. And and I was so proud to see and happy to see that, you know, right in the middle, the big, huge, bold words by far was mission. And that's what everyone said is, you know, that's why I'm here. I work at Bridger because the mission. And I think constantly reminding our staff and our team that, yes, we're a business. Yes, we have to make money. Yes, I want to pay you a lot of money. Yes, I want you to leave my companies if you ever do rich and happy. But ultimately, 
the mission is what matters. And, you know, we have we have the privilege at Bridger Aerospace of having a mission that is really important. People depend on us. You know, oftentimes people don't know anything about what we do until their homes are about to get burned down or they're evacuating with their family. And, you know, when a CL-415 EAF super scuba comes in at treetop level and they see the bottom of that plane getting ready to drop, you know, 1,412 gallons, you know, to protect their home and their family, that's the best sight they've ever seen. You know, it's really important for me that that mission is pounded into our team. But the beauty is I don't really have to pound it into it. Most people are attracted to it. They see that about our company, and we hear that from our staff. Something I talk a lot about, we talk a lot about, is that the reality that you can do good in the world and run a great business. And I think there's a multitude of ways that, and examples of that success story in American corporations. I think one of the ones that I want to talk a little about that you guys are wonderful examples of is, is your labor force. You're veteran-owned. Veterans make up a huge part of your team. And I want to just talk about the business value add that you have from building a really strong veteran team. That ethos, that brotherhood, that sisterhood, and that values-based system has been super important for me um, just as a human being, as a husband, as a father, and also, you know, as a business founder. And I think we've created that around Bridger. And I think we've been able to tap into, you know, not hiring veterans out of charity. You know, that's bullshit. You know, it's not charity to hire veterans. They're sharp, motivated, you know, uh, capable people who don't need to be hired to meet some quota or to, to give them a handout. They should be hired because they know what the hell they're doing. And they're smart people who've operated in high pressure environments and who know how to get a job done. So, you know, a lot of people, oh, thank you for hiring veterans. Thank you for Make Bridge. And I'm like, oh, thank me for anything. Like, I'm lucky to have them. And, and I'm lucky to have that density of excellence on our team. That's been a huge competitive advantage for us and, and will continue to be. That's a great way of challenging the traditional framework. I love it. The other way I think implicit in Bridger's mission is the importance of conserving the natural environment. I mean, you literally are protectors of, of the forest in many cases. Um, and so I'm curious how you see that part of your business, the, the role of conservation, environmental protection, sustainability. Like, how, how do you look at that as part of your, your mission? Well, I mean, it's central. I mean, it is, it is the mission. You know, our mission statement is save lives, uh, protect property and protect habitat. So, you know, we're, you know, we only get one of these earths to live on. Uh, they're not making any more of them as far as I'm concerned. So we, we got to take care of it. We got to protect it. And that comes in many forms. I think what we're seeing now in the early, kind of scary to think, almost mid-21st century is, you know, we're starting to see some of the consequences of a lot of our land management policies coming back to bite us. You know, people bring up climate change related to, to wildfires all the time. And I'm not evasive about it to say, listen, whatever whatever the issue of climate change is, whether humans cause it with their diesel pickup trucks, whether, you know, airliners cause it with their emissions or, you know, whether it's cows farting on the ranch or whether it's just natural, you know, cyclical. The climate's been changing since the days of the dinosaurs. So whatever's causing it, I don't really care to talk about it because, to be honest, it doesn't matter. Whatever's causing it and whatever we do to stop it isn't going to matter for 50 or 100 years. The reality is my business and my mission is fighting fires today. And those fires are getting worse. A lot of it is the wildland urban interface. We have a lot of people building homes and living in places that 20 years ago, there was nobody there. And 20 years ago, if that 30 acres yeah. burned, nobody even knew or cared. It was a bunch of sagebrush and sheetgrass, whatever, didn't make the news. But now when there's a thousand homes there and a thousand residents, all of a sudden we got to fight that fire. Uh, and then we stopped logging our forests starting in like the 60s and 70s when the environmental preservation movement basically said, 
Let's just put a ring fence around any public lands and stop touching it. Those forests are meant to burn. They're supposed to burn every few years. And by letting that fuel load get to the point where if they burn now, they become infernos. They're far hotter and far more damaging than before. So now when those fires start, we have to fight them so that we can then thin the forest properly, uh, basically go in, responsibly log, not clear cut, but responsibly log these forests reduce the fuel load so that then when they do burn, they can burn healthily and steadily. And, and, and luckily, that strategy is finally now being accepted and implemented at the Washington level here in the United States. But the reality is that's going to take a literally it will take a century to go back and clean up mm-hmm. a lot of our forests and public lands to get them to a safe status. In the meantime, while that's going on, we have to be ready to, to fight those fires to protect people. So, you know, the role of Bridger and the aerial firefighter and, and the conservation and protection of nature and our natural resources is obviously critical. Um, at the end of the day, it's a ground firefighter mission. You know, ground firefighters have to get in and build those fire breaks and, and evacuate people and protect those forests and, and those communities. But, you know, w- we are the cavalry there. We're the ones that are going to get there first. We're going to slow that fire down. We're going to corral it. We're going to hold it long enough, hopefully, for those ground teams to get in and do what they have to do. What are you most excited about for Bridger for the future? I'm excited about so much. It's hard to put a word on it. I, I think, you know, we have a great team. Uh, we've had really exciting growth since since we founded. You know, we started with a few hundred K in revenue in our, you know, 2015 and, you know, 16, 17 base, it was 300K, a million dollars, 3 million, you know, 13, 30, 45, you know, on to 100 this year. So, you know, the, the money aspect of our growth has been healthy. It's going well. And, you know, I think we're going to continue on that kind of growth trajectory going forward. So that's exciting, not because we all want to get rich, but because that means our plan is validated. It, it means that the customer, most importantly, is uh, accepting and excited about what we're doing. So that growth is exciting again, but we don't want to grow for the sake of growing. You know, I think companies that become obsessed with a growth mindset and all they care about is grow, 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 diversify, grow, you know, at all costs, they very quickly grow themselves into mediocrity. You know, although we've grown fast, it's funny if you sat on my board meetings over the years and listened to me talk locally, growth was never our, our focus. You know, I knew we would grow, but the focus was quality. The focus was mission. The focus was excellence. And I think by focusing on that, we've we've grown naturally. So there are some really exciting capabilities we're going to add over the next couple of years. Our software capability is growing uh, at a really exciting rate, and, and that's going to be a capability that is going to give more newer and better fire information to more citizens around the world. So really excited about that. And then, you know, increasing the size of our fleet in the U.S. But most importantly, what I'm probably most personally excited about is taking our capabilities international. Uh, We've been entirely U.S.-based since founding, Mm -hmm. but we are in constant discussions uh, with literally six out of seven continents eagerly want us to go and, and help them with their fire problems. So I think 2023 into 2024, we'll start to see our first international forays. And we're really excited about that. Last questions I want to get to, which I hope inspire folks that are listening. So they're a little more on the inspirational side and less on the practical side, if you'll indulge. Sure. You had this great quote when you won the Montana Land Reliance Conservation Award. It was, we do not own the land. We are just the current stewards of it. Someone else will walk the ranch in a thousand years and they will have no idea who I am. It's important to me that we leave it better than we found it. God isn't making any more land and we need to take care of that which we have. I really love that quote. And I just was hoping you would talk to us a little bit about it. Well, thanks for sharing it. It's, you know, we own a lot of farm and ranch land throughout Montana. 
And that's a passion of my wife and, and mine and my brothers. Our family are big conservationists. And simply for exactly what I said in the quote is, and what I mentioned earlier, you know, God's not making any more, any more land. And what's there, uh, we have to take care of and we have to preserve for future generations. And preserve doesn't always mean just put a fence around and don't touch it, but we have to be stewards of it and we have to leave it better than we found it. In some cases, that is protecting it from the hazards that threaten it. In some cases, that's restoring it to a healthier status than it was before. I mean, we saw the consequences of terrible land management many times over. We saw it in the Dust Bowl when literally, you know, half of America was choked out by dust and was starving because of of massive federally mandated and directed land management procedures that were wrongheaded. We're not in a too dissimilar place now with with some of our forest management that that has been misguided for for, for decades on end. So, you know, preserving the land is is something that just is really important to us personally as a family. And uh, of course, it ties in with our mission at Bridger uh, very elegantly. I got the chance to talk to a colleague and friend of yours earlier this week. I'm going to talk to him again next week. Uh, but Greg Putnam said something really awesome about you, and I just wanted to let you react to it. He said, you are one of those kinds of guys who sees all these giant challenges and problems that are facing the world that are really big and really complex and really systematic. And in his mind, you're the kind of person who can tackle it. And so I'm curious the world we live in, I think we are constantly deluged with the big giant problems and challenges. And oftentimes it, it looks like we can't solve them because they're so big and they're so daunting and they're so complex and they're so systemic. How do you combat that in your own perspective? How do you get to a point where you, you see a potential and a solution to take on these big challenges? How would you suggest we inspire others to do the same? Not to be too... Um corny about it, but I think there are times where, you know, an individual can make a huge difference. And, you know, sometimes millions or billions of people will will just be seeing something happen and saying, man, there's nothing we do about that. And then one person steps up and says, no, we can do something about it. And almost just by that action, by that stance alone, others say, okay, maybe you're right, we can. And, you know, <laughs> Whether it's Winston Churchill against the Nazis, whether it's you know Robin Oppenheimer building the atomic bomb, whether it's Rosa Parks on the bus, whether it's Martin Luther King, you know, I mean, uh, the list goes on of, of when a single person has embodied um, you know change uh, on a on a structural global scale. And and in no way am I saying I'm one of those people, but what I'm saying is those individuals can inspire those of us who are dealing with less global challenges. You know, it's not necessarily World War II or racial segregation or, or atomic energy, but saying, hey. You know, here is a problem that's facing our our little family here, our section of society, and it may seem like we can't solve this, but uh, you know, that that one person solved a challenge a hell of a lot bigger than this. Um, I, I think we can figure this out, and just having the courage to say, let's try to find a solution. And what I found is normally, when one person comes to the table and says, "I want to change this dynamic," will you help me? Uh, it's amazing what asking for help does. And yeah. it's amazing when I've asked for help, I've never once been told no throughout the history of my life for anything, you know, um, never once been told no, whether it was, you know, having been in a plane crash and I needed help getting, uh, you know, out of the crash, whether it was, you know, wounded colleagues on the battlefield, whether it was business, whether it was money, whether it was advice, you know, every time, you know, uh, it's amazing when you just ask for help, people want to be helpful. And they want to to do the right thing. And if you give them the chance to do so, they oftentimes will. 
Now you often you know, have to hold them accountable and, and, and it doesn't mean it's going to be a walk in the park. But if one person has the courage to say, I can change this, help me, um, I think oftentimes others will follow. We're a patriotic, proud to be American company. Uh, we're doing an important mission for the country and for the world. Uh, we're proud of that mission, but we're also we're also business people. We're focused on doing it in a way uh, that is financially sustainable, that that generates return for our investors, and and still delivers on, on the sacred mission we have, which is which is to save lives, protect property. So um, I think we're we're a special business. Um, I think we're the only publicly traded company that that has the kind of profile that we do. And and uh, whether that's a good or a bad thing, I guess we'll find out here in the next two years. But uh, um, all I can tell you is we have a great team that really does care about the mission and the goodness of the company. And my belief is real fundamentals matter in business. And I think the last 15 years have had a certain amount of suspension of that reality. But fundamentals matter. And uh, I intend to show that that Bridger Aerospace, uh, while rooted in our mission, will deliver some really strong uh, business fundamentals that will uh, that will deliver a lot of value to our employees, to our shareholders, and most importantly, our customers over the next few years. So thanks for having me. This has been really fun. Awesome. Uh, well, again, I, I really appreciate the theme of, of your podcast and what you guys are trying to do. It's really nice to hear, hear you guys trying to focus on, on good, positive American stories. Huge thanks to Tim for the fascinating conversation. Consensus in Conversation is hosted by me, Connor Gaughan. This episode was produced by Will Gatchel and Chandler Bramstead. Executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to Consensus Creative Director Kate Tucker. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next week.